the next time I told the story, um, I, I, I couldn't get through it. It was embarrassing. I realized that, um, okay, this, this is a story that, um, is, 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 is going to be helpful to people. You know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Welcome back, listening audience, to the Walk the Talk America Guns and Mental Health Podcast. We are always happy to have you with us and super thankful for your continued downloading and support. Today we have Dr. Matt Miller from the Veterans Health Administration. He is in charge of the Suicide Prevention Program, and I will let him introduce himself a little bit further here in a second. I want to say hi to my co-host, Michael Sedini. Hello, Mike. What's going on, Jake? Oh, you know, the usual, holding it down up here in northern Nevada. Got a little snow on the ground today. I, I'm excited for today. An uh, old friend of mine is on on the show. We go back. Days in D.C. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, last time I saw you was in San Francisco, Matt. Yes, and that was, Mike, uh, almost a year to the date, wasn't it? It was right before the world ended. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think it was. I think it was around this week time frame uh, last year. Is the last trip that uh, last trip that I took. But that was an important uh, meeting talking about uh, lethal means safety and um, veterans and saving veterans' lives through lethal means safety. So, hey, if you're going to have a last meeting, that's a that's a good one to to have. I'm pretty sure I caught COVID from that meeting, actually. It was uh, tail end of, November, of uh, February, and then, uh, like, I don't know, t- 10 days later, I was just, like, knocked right down, right as everything was unraveling. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was a good meeting, and we made a lot of really good connections with uh, with some people with whom we're now still in touch and, and developing really cool programs and and uh, efforts and so forth. So, um, Matt, why don't you tell everybody uh, a little bit more about yourself beyond just your, your title and duty? Yeah, so I'm a clinical psychologist uh, by background. Uh, I served in the United States Air Force uh, as a clinical psychologist. I had a really, I think, um, uh, for me, interesting opportunity, interesting time uh, to come into the military. I went off to commissioned officer training in lovely Montgomery, Alabama uh, in August of 2001. And let me tell you, that is a really warm time to go to Montgomery, Alabama. Um, And uh, finished finished up uh, commissioned officer training, actually 
I left uh, a week early because my first daughter was born. And uh, I flew out of there thanks to uh, Red Cross permission and facilitation, made it to the hospital in Michigan just in time to see my daughter born. And then immediately reported to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. A few days later, literally, uh, 9-11 happened. Um, And, uh, you know, I, I did not wear... I remember distinctly, I did not wear my blues again for three years uh, after that. It was a straight battle dress uniform from that day forward. Um, After I completed uh, residency at Wright-Patterson in my hometown of Dayton, Ohio, I was assigned as chief of mental health uh, for uh, an installation called Vance Air Force Base. It was in Enid, Oklahoma. Uh, I had never heard of Enid, Oklahoma or Vance Air Force Base, but um, my commanding officer on assignment uh, night told me, you know, this, this, is, this is a good thing. This is an honor that we're entrusting you with this. You're going to be the only psychologist on the base and in charge of everything for mental health. And uh, at the time, it kind of came across, it had that feeling of, um, you know, like uh, back in the day when our parents told you this is for your own good, but um, we really questioned <laughs> if they knew what they were talking about. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's how I felt when my colonel was telling me about the assignment to Vance. But, you know, she was completely right. Uh, went there. And uh, Vance is just, it's such an interesting mission. It's an undergraduate pilot training base that's joint services and international. So you bring in international allies and and train their pilots. Uh, it's It's a combination, a hive of Navy, Marine, and Air Force uh, uh, pilot trainees. These trainees spend a year there, and if they make it through, uh, they get their wings. Um, And if they don't make it through, uh, they're given a different assignment. Um, So there's there's a lot of uh, dreams and hopes that are um, walking, talking every day there. I became particularly close during that time frame to two instructor pilots that were also flight commanders. They were both Marines. They were both Cobra drivers. That is just a whole different culture. And um, I, I, I loved it. Um, it made me laugh. Uh, occasionally it concerned me, <laughs> but uh, they were, they were the best friends that, that you could, that you could ask for. Um, one, John, his call sign was nuts. He was uh, uh, called back for deployment uh, towards the end of my time at Vance. We had worked together for two or three years at that point at Vance. And uh, yeah, I had a party and, and he, he went off. He went to 29 Pumps to do his recall training for the Cobra. And um I got word a little while later, knock on my door from one of my sergeants that um, 
uh, news had come in that, that John uh, was was dead. And um, as it, as it turned out, uh, he he died by suicide. A couple minutes after my sergeant uh, told me that, and I thanked her and excused her. Um, I got a call from Ray, my other friend, who was a Cobra driver, and his questions his questions were totally reasonable, but I was haunted by them a bit for several years. Uh, his his questions were, um, "Did you know?" and um, I, I remember staring at the desk and talking on the phone and looking at it and saying, no. And he said, what did we miss? And I said, I don't know. And, and really, those were, those were the two key questions that I spent probably about five years um, really wrestling with and working through. I got out of the military. Um, I uh, bounced around a little bit, struggled with uh, what was meaningful work, how psychology fit into that, questioning everything from A to Z, um, and, and really ultimately working through guilt and the finger pointed uh, towards me by me. Um, I went back to my colonel's comment about assignment and how it was um, – really uh, an honor, a statement for them to assign me there as the only psychologist, Lone Ranger type, they called it, and that they wouldn't entrust that to, to just anyone. And uh, they were trusting me. And um, that hit me hard in addition to, and obviously in the context of John's death. So, um, you know, Fast forwarding through time, I was watching TV, still kind of wandering in the wilderness a bit and um, turned on a special and it was about veteran suicide. And it, it really hit me between the eyes, the problem, the issue, the situation. So in one of those moments where um, it really became clear to me that either I'm going to get up and do something, literally get up and do something, or... I'm just going to keep basically wallowing and, and living in this uh, metaphysical existential uh, angst. And um, so, okay, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to do something. I didn't know what I was doing. I hopped on USA jobs for the first time. I looked for positions in the VA. I looked for positions that were what I did in the air force, chief of mental health. And I applied and um, I, I, I got hired at a local facility as chief of mental health in Michigan. And uh, one thing led to another with that, became the uh, national director of the Veterans and Military Crisis Line. And then that led to becoming the national director of suicide prevention for the VA, which now also includes um, uh, the Veterans Crisis Line. And uh, here we are today. I think all of it comes back to um, trying to do something meaningful, trying to do something purposeful uh, to address veteran suicide and um, 
trying to help those who are experiencing what John experienced and trying to help those who experience what I experienced uh, towards turning this issue around. So that has brought me across the paths of uh, you two crazy guys. And uh, here we are again today talking. I um, have heard you tell that story or some iteration thereof four times now. And <laughs> I, I am always moved and touched and I always hear something different. And there's two questions I don't think I've asked before. One what? is, and this relates to maybe audience members who are listening, who have experienced something similar. One is, how do you manage to keep telling that story and keep it together and describe, if you would, the process through which you worked? But the second one that really, I think, because um, I know you've told it more than four times, but the second question I have really has to do with the five years that you you fast forwarded through, you were presumably working and doing things and raising a family and being productive while still having this existential uh, wrestling match, trying to find meaning and, and purpose and stuff. And, and I gotta, I gotta believe there's people out there who are doing the same thing where like you're going through your motions, you're doing the thing, presumably in your field of work um, and still facing the contradiction uh, or, or at least the paradox, I guess, can you speak to a little bit to both of those? You know, how, how is it having to retell the story? And, and, and I'm the one who asked you to do it. Right. And then also what was that, what was that half a decade like, uh, when you're, you're like, I don't even know if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. I don't, I don't like telling this story. Um, I it just, you and I have always been, been honest, Jake. And I, I've, I've found it, um, easy to be that way with with you and just interact and and talk and uh, so I mean I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna put up fronts with you I, I don't like telling the story um, I won't ask again then thank you thank you for <laughs> no doing I, I, I I think that it's um, I think that I learned so I didn't tell the story at all to anyone for for years i i i did not make any connections with my own wife and family uh between why i decided to get out of the military and john i of course they knew about john but i i never i never talked about or made that connection um and didn't want to um, because I think making the connection would, would seal the deal in terms of um, impact and consequences. So I, I think I tried to buffer myself a little bit uh, from that. I, I did not tell the story to my family until after I had watched that 60 minutes episode and decided to get up off of the couch. And I remember I went, I, we were at a restaurant and um, I, I sobbed. Um, it was embarrassing for, uh, for me. Um, 
the next time I told the story, um, I, I, I couldn't get through it. It was embarrassing. I realized that, um, okay, this, this is a story that, um, is, 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 is going to be helpful to people. So you have to do it and you have to get through it. And I'm, I'm a pretty introverted guy, which most, most people find kind of surprising, but, um, it just, it, it drains me. I am ready for a nap after, after talking about it or speaking. And, um, it still does that. Um, you know, I had to also, as part of this, uh, before I was able to talk about it in um, large settings, I, I had to t- I had to talk to John's wife, and um, I, I felt like I needed to share with her some of the responsibility that I felt, and I I felt that I needed to to have her permission to uh, tell the story because um, uh, John was hers. I mean, and that was her story and much more directly, much more directly than mine. And I did not want to, um, I, 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 I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to in any way devalue that. Um, and, and she was, she was incredibly, uh, supportive. Um, it it was, it was one of the most uh, probably therapeutic and cathartic experiences that I've had. And, and, you know, the interesting thing is a lot of people know her. Um, I, she's now on the leading edge of, uh, of, um, survivor, uh, suicide survivor services and programs working with TAPS. Uh, and she, she's done uh, so much for people. And so that really served as an inspiration and a model for me in terms of saying that this has to be something that um, is, is shared so that, that people can um, connect and, 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 and not feel isolated and not feel alone and, and maybe ultimately maybe find some hope. And so for me, every time I go into, I do not want to do this, but, um, all right, there, there must be someone out there who needs a little hope. So let's, let's do this. Um, and, I mean, in, in terms of the, in, in terms of the, uh, oh, let me say this other thing though, Jake, one thing that scares me. So it scared me silly that when I first shared it, I couldn't get through it. It scares me now that I can share it and get through it. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what to do, what to do with that. I'm still figuring, uh, some of that out. Um, as, as part of the process. Um, and you have the parts of you that, uh, feel like, well, that's bad parts of you that say, oh, that's good. Um, so I, I, I do experience those dueling sort of, um, aspects of it. Um, 
in terms of those five years, I think uh, to some extent, it's it's questionable if I was functioning. It depends how you define functioning. I, I wouldn't rate my relationships as being high quality. <laughs> um, I, I wouldn't uh, rate my um, my spiritual, my uh, relational, my physical uh, development as being uh, cutting edge. Um, it was, I kind of view it as a time where um, uh, the, the, the standard and the baseline was a little different <laughs> and uh, keeping your head above water was, was a good thing for sure uh, without making too many uh, mistakes. So I don't want to come across like uh, I, I, I uh, was the model of uh forward functioning there across all life domains jake yeah i appreciate that and i really appreciate the vulnerability that's um it's really remarkable to hear that and i i do believe with great depth of of uh confidence that people will hear that and find strength and encouragement um so thank you for that yeah one of the things i wanted to ask you matt um because because i'm a, a suicide loss survivor as well the president of my firearms company, which I sold a couple of years ago, took his life in 2009. And one of the things that you said that really hit home with me was the fact that when you guys were talking about it, the aftermath, right? And what did we miss? Um, th those, those type of questions. For me, uh, not only was he the president of my company, but he's one of my best friends. And we were together for a complete, like when I say we were together, we were traveling the country for a, com a, a whole month before this happened. And um, I remember being at the funeral and kind of being confronted by his family. And when I say confronted, not in a bad way, um, but I remember they all, they all came to me and they, they wanted answers because I was with him, you know, the most. And they wanted they wanted some sort of closure and I, I couldn't give it to him. I remember saying it was the complete opposite. He, he was making plans for the future. He was mad at me because I hadn't made my plans with him in the future. Like he had already gotten plane tickets to certain places that we were supposed to go. And um, I, I remember staring at my friend in a box and then having each one of those family members individually come up to me and be like, Hey, hey, you know, now that we're alone, maybe you can tell me what was going on. And there was an, it's a dark way to look at it, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of people always feel like there is an answer. And every time I take a course or I'm in some kind of training, uh, now that I'm, I've kind of gone into the mental health side of things, they always say the signs and everything like that. And I always go, oh, I have one of those instances where there was no signs. H how did you deal with that? Mm -hmm. I, I, uh, it's been a process. I, I, I think that, um, it's, it's been a process of, um, coming to terms with the fact that while suicide, I do believe is preventable. It's also very complicated and, um, you as much as you want to, or I want to explain it, it's, it's, it's very difficult to do so with one or two uh, answers. It's, it's something where 
you got to expect a long and ongoing conversation, not one sentence or two sentences and saying, here it is, that that explains it. So it's been coming to terms with that. Um, it's, it's, it's really helped, though, propel me and fuel me to explore the whys in a constructive way that then converts to, so what can we do about this from a prevention perspective? And I, I think one example in my own life and development where that's happened is I, it has really pushed me to better understand and maybe have my eyes open towards what some in the field may call the fluid vulnerability uh, aspect. And that, that's, that's this conceptualization that when it, when it comes to suicide and when it comes to suicide risk, there may be certain factors that, um, that they can serve as risk factors and they may be somewhat chronic in, in nature. But we can also experience times where um, something happens or something occurs and it could be a number of things or a combination of things that can't be predicted by a formula. And all of a sudden, our vulnerability, much like fluid, rises. It's, it's almost like I envision a cup of water and a big rock being put in it. And what happens with displacement with the water and perhaps the water spilling over? The, the, there are times in our life where we may feel these periods of, of, of overwhelmed, of embarrassed, of being in an inescapable situation. And, you know, a month ago, we may have said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm okay. And it wasn't a lie. It wasn't that we were hiding something. It wasn't that we were in denial. It was that life changes every day and things go up, things go down, and it's just a really complicated combination that can impact any per particular person's risk at any particular time, which then gets to uh, the fact that from a suicide prevention perspective, how, how can we on an ongoing basis stay as connected as possible, stay as engaged in well-being and health so that uh, when we have those times, perhaps when um, uh, the fluid vulnerability rises, there are outlets, there are resources, and they can be engaged. Now, and that's not to say, now here's where I have to be careful. That's not to say that in situations um, where suicide occurs, they didn't have resources or, or they, they, um, they didn't have outlets or they didn't engage in staying connected up till that point. That's not true necessarily. So there may be that that gets us into stigma and saying, so what can we do to address stigma and and what may serve as a barrier in those moments, maybe where we need to reach out. So I think there's all kinds of constructive ways that the questions can can go as long as we know in the context of there's no easy answers. 
You're not going to explain it all and you can't explain it all. So I want to take that and dovetail into um, what the efforts are, right? So a year ago when we were at that conference in San Francisco together, my memory was that was a big deal because up to that point, VA broadly had never mentioned firearms specifically in the conversation about suicide prevention and lethal means access. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was kind of a, a groundbreaking moment where they they specifically addressed firearms. And so I'm wondering now that a year has passed, what has your what is your organization? What have your people done? What have you seen broadly across the the country, maybe in some of the other uh, communities of public health and uh, medicine and mental health? What have you seen that's changed or shifted, if if anything? Have we have we started to move the needle yet? Yeah. Well, I think I think what's important to serve as a as a foundation um, to to address where you guys are going. I, I think it's important to understand that seventy um, percent of veteran suicides in a year. And in the last two years of our data, at least, are secondary to firearms. We know that um, if we are able to address uh, some issues with regards to firearms and safety, then uh, you're, you're going to lower veteran suicides. We know that, a, that many times within suicide, um, it's, it's, it's a moment in time and it is, it's a painful moment in time. And it seems like an eternal moment in time, but it's a moment in time. And it's not that, um, it's not that owning a gun makes you suicidal that's 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 a misunderstanding if people are 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 getting that from the literature from the data the issue is that in these moments in time if you have a way to lethally weaponize the thoughts and the feelings that you're experiencing you might die and a gun is the most lethal way to weaponize those thoughts and those feelings very quickly. So that's 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 the that's the first thing I think that needs to be um, asserted as a, as as context for this conversation. The second thing, the the VA is is very careful, I think, to present this issue in two important filters. Filter number one, uh, safety, not restriction. So when we talk about lethal means, we're talking about lethal means safety we're not talking about lethal means restriction. Restriction is a word that um, is 
in our opinion, out of our lane. And it is not the word that we want to focus on. There are rights, there are laws, and those need to be respected and will be respected. So safety, not restriction. And I think the other aspect there, the other filter is it's safety in the context of suicide prevention. It's not safety in terms of just general uh, firearm ownership and handling. That's, that's not our area. I, that, that's, that's Mike. Uh, you know, Mike uh, can, can give a seminar up, down, all around about firearm safety just broadly in the context of firearms. We're talking about safety not restriction in the context of suicide prevention. So we're always really careful to pair whatever we're talking about with safety in the context of those all too common dark moments when um, we need to think about creative ways to not weaponize the thoughts and the feelings that are being experienced. Yeah, Matt, sorry to cut you off, but this is really important for me, especially for the listeners that are from my community, right? which I consider the Second Amendment community, uh, gun culture, right? There's a lot of misinformation about, I would say, the VA and also just our voice in general as, as gun people. And we were at the White House together working on the prevents team. And one of the things that I'm super proud of um, and it just isn't people from the VA, right? There was people from all over in like meeting to, to tackle this issue um, was the acceptance of, of myself, right? Like going into those meetings. And I'll be honest with you, I could have sat there for those two days and not said a word and just listened to all the brilliant minds in the room, even the ones that maybe were for restriction, right? And just be present in the moment. Um, but I thought it was so awesome that, everybody there was giving me that platform to talk about the things that we're concerned about. Um, give me a chance to talk about what walk to talk America is doing, um, you know, to chip in on this, this issue. I think it's important for gun people to understand that that was a spot at the table. Like the, the our voices are heard. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and what do you think? I mean, yeah, I think that that's, I, I think we're, we're not going to get anywhere. On, on this issue, Mike, without um, um, everyone's voice heard and brought into the conversation and um, uh, integrated into whatever plan we come up with. I, I think you raised uh, a really important point in a comment that you made, Mike, and I, I, I think it's important for me to acknowledge it um, in the, in the name of being a, um, honest, honest broker of, of word and message here that you mentioned, there are some who, who did talk restriction and I, there are, there are people who in the context of a suicide who, who 
really believe, strongly believe that um, restriction is is the is the way to go, and um, they'll they'll present some various data to support that. But I think that um, I think that the conversation is critically important, and if we walk out of the room or just get into uh, preacher or politician uh, mode in response, uh, it's, it's, it's not going to move things forward. And what I really watched in that, Mike, that experience was I watched you doing exactly that. And um, I, I distinctly remember thinking at the start that uh, I, I thought, oh boy, um, th- this, this is, this is going to be ugly, but by the end, you and another person who represented a very different view, you were talking after everyone left sitting together at the table. And, and that to me was just such an image of the good way that this, that this can go when we stay at the table, when we continue uh, to, to talk things through and work things through. Um, and, and then what that leads to is a roadmap and a plan that we can all sit there and say, okay, I can agree to this and to these steps. So yeah, the model that, that you and he laid out in that, I, I think was just a vivid illustration of what I hope occurs uh, more broadly and generally. I would say it, it is. And, and, you know, since, since that meeting and a couple of years, I mean, it was like a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. you know, being on the, the governor's challenge and mayor's challenge teams, I could be completely honest and say some of the things that that we have created at walk to talk America come from some of the people that disagree with me mm-hmm. um, because there's certain things that we know, okay, this is kind of a non-starter, but Hey, what if we did this? What do you think about that? You know what I mean? And then the person goes, well, yeah, you could do it like this. If I can't, if I can't take that information in, I can't come up with an innovative new way to get the gun industry behind doing uh, something that could save the life of somebody who's in crisis. Right. Like that's, and that's really what the beauty of it is. And everyone always thinks that it's just, Oh, you got to fight and you got to preach. And like you said, become a politician. You don't, you can, you can play with other people's ideas in a graceful manner, Mm -hmm. right? The Oxford manner. Um, But, but you can, you could also take that information, filter it, and then figure out a solution that you can apply. And, and the importance, I think, of, of all of us staying at the table and dialoguing about this, I, I think, is uh, also evidenced in, um, so I, I, I really want to work on um, messaging uh, and messaging campaigns to veterans addressing firearm safety in the context of suicide prevention. Now, I remember when we were kids and our mom and dad would tell us what would be cool to wear and how to dress. And we would sit there and we would roll our eyes and say, there's no way I'm wearing that or doing that. That is not cool. They don't know what they're talking about. You know, take that same experience. And if we're not talking with people like you, if we're not talking and getting the perspective 
whatever messaging we do is probably going to sound like my parents picking out my tie for the junior high dance. It's just not going to be cool or good or effective or, or meaningful. So you are our closest ally and best friend in terms of, um, how, how do we communicate effectively? How do we reach the mutual goal? And that's it. The mutual goal, keeping people alive. That's it. it it's not taking away guns. It's not restricting rights. The, that is not the goal. The, the goal we can agree on is keeping people alive and minimizing anyone experiencing what you and I and thousands of others have experienced through the loss of a loved one to suicide. We had uh, Christian Conti, who's another psychologist on the show uh, just recently, and he's he's been doing this work in what he calls yield theory. And um, it's he's written a book about it called Walking Through Anger. He works in, uh, in anger management and violence reduction, and he works in the Pennsylvania prison system. He's doing some good stuff. But the, the heart of yield theory is to be able to communicate in such a way that you circumvent a person's fight or flight response, meaning circumvent their defensiveness. And what I'm hearing when I, when I hear you guys talk is when we communicate with our messaging or uh, even just dialoguing at the table, if we do it in a respectful manner and we're mindful of the the limbically, you know, emotional triggers, uh, limbically triggering statements or, or flashpoints, then we can access the, the frontal cortex and, and, reasonably discuss alternatives and options uh without emotion you know we can we mm -hmm. can do this logically and i think there's a, a place at the table for for the data geeks among us who like to gather data and draw correlations and sometimes even causalities and then use those to formulate even further conversation rather than going off of ideology or belief which when attacked can seem very much like the person him or herself is being attacked, right? So um, what I'm hearing is we need to, we need to figure out a way where all parties involved can, can receive the information into their, into their brains, wrestle with it and come up with new alternatives. What do, what does the VA have planned uh, for, for doing that? What is, what is the strategy here? Um, cause I can tell you ours is, you know, education, but, um, I'm curious what the, like the overarching goal is if we're looking down the field, how do we do that? What is the messaging? What specifics might we invite the listening audience to incorporate into their own lives when they're trying to have these conversations? So I think, I think our first step has to be, um, <sighs> making sure that we're effectively and clearly communicating the root issue and the goal. Uh, so we, we can't skip that and get to uh, how to communicate messages like um, uh, safe storage and lockbox and things like that. Though those are, possibilities along the path. Um, but, but you're, you're never going to get to that effectively if you, if you don't make sure that at the starting point, your intent, your goal is clear. 
So I, I think for us in the VA, it's, it's an issue of really just spending time engaging different modalities in different forums to try to communicate what our intent is here and what the goal is. The, the goal is to, to keep veterans alive and to promote health and well-being and a life worth living in all veterans. That's the goal. The, the strategy or the path there is safety. The motive there is uh, not from a perspective of uh, taking away a right, taking away a possession. It's, it's from the perspective of what can we come up with so that these thoughts and feelings are not weaponized in the moment. And I, I don't know that, that we've um, historically really just stepped back and said, here's the goal, here's the motive, here's our heart. I think that that we've done a fantastic job at delivering some key messages, which are very true. But if the heart and the motive is not understood, almost anything else is going to probably be misinterpreted according to millions of possible filters. So what are we doing, Jake? What we're, what we're, what we're trying to do is come to conversations like this and to talk about what our motive is to, to, to answer some of these hard questions as best as we can to be honest and, and vulnerable so that when we then start talking about strategies, we're listening and hearing from others who maybe don't see it the same way. We're learning from that. And then we're moving forward together with strategies and plans. So I, for me, it's not um, sitting here and, and rattling off to you, here's, here's the 10 point plan. For me, it's, it's saying it's, it's, it's really, in many ways, organic. It's really pretty simple. And it, it, it involves exactly what we're sitting here and doing right now. It involves talking to 500 listeners of a podcast and trying to share our heart and going from there one step at a time. I know that you guys have done some really amazing work in so far as changing the the culture of what people understand VA specifically VA hospitals and treatment centers to be because we've heard tales upon tales about people who are suspicious or skeptical of going in and um, being diagnosed, not necessarily even with a mental illness, but a physical calamity and having their records fall into some repository that's then universally shared and could be leveraged in a negative way against them to restrict rights or privileges or something like that. Um, and it sounds like what you're saying is not necessarily a top-down methodological approach where you're saying, hey, we have the answer to this and here's the 10 steps. It's more philosophical mm -hmm. and you're building pillars to a foundation from which the methodology can e emerge. And it seems like a 
my experience of, of .gov, as I call it, <laughs> all government, is um, that government historically has said, here's what you're going to do. And, and now you guys have taken this very unorthodox approach of saying, let's listen first and, and then respond. Is that accurate? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> and I, I would like anybody to call me out if I'm, if I'm not living in it. But um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, um, you know, I think as I look back on it, I think uh, an underlying dynamic that, that really hit me hard with John was that, um, and this is hard for me to admit, but I, I, I think I, I think I was a little bit arrogant. I, I think I thought I had life figured out. And I think I thought that there were, um, if then equations, they were very calculable. And if you did your calculations correctly, you, you came out a certain way and you went to the next if then equation. I, I, I think at a young, early career point for me with a lot of responsibility, I, I think it was the first time the if then equations, I turned them in and I got an F, not an A. And um, that, that I think was a big part of what shook me. And, and, but then that turns into um, maybe you don't know all the answers. Maybe you do need to spend a little more time listening and a little more time in um, shared understanding and knowledge and governance and a little less time in Lone Ranger. And that's why it was also interesting to me that that was called a Lone Ranger position. And that was a good thing, like an honor. But then I, I came to view that a little bit differently too and think, um, Maybe, maybe that's not the approach. Maybe that's not the goal. So yeah, I hope I've learned. Uh, and I hope that I've converted that and consistently do so into an approach that is, let's listen. Let's look at all angles. Um, and let's find ways to move forward based on listening. I have one, I want to be respectful of time because I know you got to get out of here, but um, I have one question. I know Mike has his typical question he asks every guest. Mine is um, because I've worked in and around government for a really long time, and sometimes uh, the bureaucracy and the people who work within it, I hate to say bureaucrats because it sounds like an epithet, but the people who work within the bureaucracy have all sorts of pressures, usually to perform and perform quickly and do things that can be advertised as performative, right? And, you know, hey, I did my job. Are you finding it difficult to um, slow down that pressure within your ranks and with your colleagues and say, you know, hey, let's, let's be more deliberate and intentional about this and not necessarily be so eager to return results uh, at the expense of, um, you know, the, the, the unintended consequences that sometimes come from hasty policies. Are you, are you finding that challenging or are people getting on board? I don't feel that pressure internally um, within the VA. I'll tell you where I, where I do feel it. I, I feel it. And I, this is, I'm going to make a statement. It's not a statement of blame. It's not a statement of, um, I don't, I don't blame people where I do feel it 
is um, sometimes what you read in the press uh, about the VA and veterans and suicide. Uh, sometimes what you hear um, uh, outside of the VA uh, talked about. And within that, the struggle is that um, if, if there's a lot of bashing that occurs and it's not fair and objective, it, it, it really adds to cynicism totally. and it decreases hope in options and that suicide is preventable. So the, 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 if I feel pressure, it's pressure to present both sides of a difficult situation. It's, it's, you want to present facts that are hard, that need to be acknowledged. Too many veterans are dying by suicide. That is a fact. It is unacceptable. And I take responsibility for that. You want to simultaneously acknowledge that from 2017 to 2018, veterans in VHA care had a 2.4% decrease in suicide rate. Veterans diagnosed with depression and anxiety have had a significant decrease in suicide rate in VHA care from 2005 to 2018. But then you always need to come back to, but it's not enough and we need right. to do more. So you can't spike the football on those sorts of things, but yet you, you need to be able to talk to them in a, um, I think in a, in a, in a 360 degree sort of way that's looking at it from all sides. So if I, if I feel any pressure, it's, it's the, importance I feel to being able to 360 everything. Um, and, and sometimes there are forums where there's just not that opportunity and you just got stuff coming at you at a 180 and, um, it's, it's hard, but, um, I, enough about me and the challenges there. I hope no, I answered a, amen your question, to that, though. That was, that was, that was super validating. Honestly, the way you painted that was, I mean, that resonated deeply with me. Thank you for that. Yeah, in, in your defense as well, um, and I know this because let's just make one thing clear. The firearms industry, the gun culture community, um, active duty military, combat vets, uh, they're just they gravitate towards us. They gravitate towards the industry because it's, it's what they know, firearms. And, um, you know, you go to any show, you'll you'll see you, that'll be confirmed. <laughs> but it's. It, the one thing I did notice is that those that have had a bad experience, and this is the importance of getting proper information out there, right? They had a bad experience. They never go back to the VA to figure out if the experience they had has now changed, or maybe there's a new program. Um, I have noticed, and these are anecdotal, but all my, my friends that served that have had great experiences of the VA, they don't talk about it. It's just like, you know, as, as opposed to the ones that were burned or felt burned or, or were upset at something that may have happened six years ago, yeah. um, they, they tend to stand on top of the mountain and shout. Right. And that's yeah. why. So I, that's why I love sort of the direction we're going in getting getting some some real information out there to maybe some of the people that are leaders in the industry that 
you know, may have had a bad experience, but I will say this in your defense. I like the people that have these great experiences. They only tell me when I ask them, it's not yeah. like he comes up when we're sitting at dinner. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's kind of like, you know, uh, no news is uh, no news is good news and bad news sells. Right. So, right. yeah. Um, but, you know, I do want to say too, to that, Mike, um, I don't, blame people who are struggling to give it another try or, or check into it. I mean, I, that's me. I, if, if I have a bad experience and I took a chance and I was vulnerable and I felt like I got burned or disrespected, um, I am not going to be eager to give it another chance. So I, I don't, I don't want to minimize the experience that perhaps some of our veterans have, have had and say, you know, just, just give it another try. I would like to say, give it another try, but I don't want to do so without acknowledging that um, I, I, I don't blame them for having reservations. I don't, I don't blame them for, um, uh, feeling uh, like why I, I tried. Um, I would still ask to try, but um, I don't blame them. Yeah, it's one of the the things that I noticed. Uh, well, it's kind of an eye opener for me because before, like three days before I met you, I was at a, a gun show down in uh, Orlando, and when people had heard I was going up there, um, I actually got cornered by a few of my friends. Uh, some of them highly decorated combat vets. And of course it was that go up there and tell them this, tell them that. Well, when I got there and I got to DC and I was having a drink um, after our first day with some of the fellows that, that work in the VA, I was telling them about what my friends were saying to me. And they're like, we changed that policy last year. Mm-hmm. I guess completely. Right. And, and, and I was like, man, this is the problem is you've got these guys down here that haven't, you know, this is why we need to, to, to pass the proper information. We you need keep to keep talking in yes. the updated information. This is exactly, these are, you know, this is it. Yeah. You need yeah. to, you need, you just need to do like the automobile dealerships do and they hang out under new management. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, we, let me, let me ask one more question before we let you go, Matt. We really yeah. appreciate you being here, but, but how do you tend to your mental health? How do you tend to your mental health now? Um, I think, I think that's been, that's been, um, a journey. Um, I, I allow myself to, uh, feel wiped out and drained after, uh, talking to two jokers like you and, um, uh, take a break. And I don't, say to my, I try to minimize saying to myself, well, I, you've got another meeting. You, you can't take a break. It's no, I, it's okay. I, I need to step away. I need to get just at five minutes, um, need to do something different here. So I, I give myself a lot more room, uh, for that. I, um, I was talking to my daughters, uh, last week and we were at the dinner table and I said, who, who do you talk to the most in a day? Just an average day. 
And they're like, oh, so they, they went around and um, uh, Faith, my oldest, said someone. Lily was next. She said someone. And then I have twins, Eve and Ella. And they said each other. I said, oh, okay, interesting. I said, but I think you're wrong. You, you talk to someone else much more frequently. And they kind of looked at me. I said, you, you, you talk to yourself. Are, are you a good friend? <laughs> are, are you nice? Are, 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 do you show a little grace? Do you give a little room? Uh, do you challenge when appropriate, but back off when appropriate? And that's from lessons learned about um, my own talk internally and being mindful of that and trying to catch when um, I am really just uh, berating myself. And uh, if, I, if I can't turn it around logically, then just take a break. Think, go, go to something else for a little while. So I, I think that was a bit important. Uh, exercise has been really important for me. Um, it's something that I need to do on a daily basis. And I need, to, I need to be pretty strict about setting time aside to do that and a routine to do it because otherwise it won't happen. But it, it's, it's meaningful. Uh, and then finally, making myself talk. Um, even if I don't feel like it being goal directed instead of mood directed, because if I'm mood directed, there's a good chance I'll go somewhere where, um, it's probably not the best neighborhood. So th those are the kind of things that come to mind, Mike. That's one of the more solid answers I've ever heard. And that yep. self-talk reflection was phenomenal. Well, uh, clinical psychologist, Matthew Miller, PhD. Thank you so much for carving out the time to be with us. I know you're you're busy and you're uh, taking the world by the tail and trying to trying to change things and make Earth better. So we really appreciate it. And um, thanks again for coming on. You know what? I, I want to say this is um, it. It uh, I joke around, but I, I, I love talking to both of you and, um, I appreciate the opportunities, look forward to more and talking about taking the world by tail. I, I really respect and appreciate what you're doing. So honestly, the, the honor is, is mine. Thanks for the opportunity. It'll be great once we get to get together again and, um, you know, it'd be nice if we all live closer, we could just shoot hoops or something and just talk about saving the world. But, uh, yeah. in the meantime, we'll settle for zoom, I suppose. And, uh, thanks again to the listening audience for continuing to support us. Thanks to arms core, our uh, title sponsor for this podcast. Uh, check out armscore.com. Thank you to Zephyr wellness, my uh, company that I co-own here in Northern Nevada and, uh, my, the support from my co-owner for sure, Lindsay Bell. And we wish you all great mental wellness. Share this podcast around. Don't let it get locked up in your head. Uh, go help make Earth better. We will see you all next time. Bye-bye. You want to present facts that are hard, that need to be acknowledged. Too many veterans are dying by suicide.